Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Scripture reading for this afternoon will be taken from Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long, we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You may be seated. Good afternoon. It is good to be back. Hope everyone had a good lunch. I'm going to begin and make a little bit of a confession. As I was getting ready to roll up here, I was checking everything to make sure it works, and I thought, I wonder if the clicker's on, and I pushed the button, and the song went out. (laughs) And so I thought, whoops, I don't know what to do now. So I thought, do I own it or not? So yes, that was me that did that. So Several people asked me today, how does that chair do that? How does it balance? And I didn't, I usually mention it, but I thought I'd told you before when I was here. But uh, this particular chair has hundreds of gyroscopes in it. And they are constantly talking to the motherboard and the computer, telling it adjust this way, adjust that way. And so if you watch it, it is constantly uh, moving back and forth. Uh, These two wheels, one will come up over another and it can actually climb stairs. It is an amazing piece of technology, but as incredible as it is, they don't have a clue how to fix me. And that says something about the ingenuity of man and our greatest brilliance versus what God has made. And uh, it is a, a testimony to the brilliance of God. You know, I've told people that this chair has been such a blessing because For two years, I was in a manual chair where I was down on the ground and looking up at people, and it was such a struggle, and your neck is sore. And when I got in this chair and I could look people eye to eye again, you forget how uh, dehumanizing it is to be at that level. And uh, one of the great things about it, before my accident, I was 5'7", and in this chair, I'm almost 6 foot. So... (laughs) I have gained a little bit of height. Perhaps one of the most misunderstood subjects in the religious world today is that of the Holy Spirit. 
And the subject is misunderstood not only by the denominational world, but it is misunderstood by many in the Lord's church. I regularly run across people who believe that the Holy Spirit is leading them in their decisions in life. They believe that the Holy Spirit is helping them understand the Scriptures. Some even believe the Holy Spirit is speaking to them. And then there are questions like, how does the Holy Spirit dwell in us today? What does John chapter 3 mean when it says we must be born of the Spirit? What is the gift of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2? And do we still receive that gift today? We're certainly not going to answer all of these questions in this lesson. I am working on writing a book on the Holy Spirit where I plan to address all of these. I hope that it will be out before the end of this year. But this is an introductory lesson dealing with the subject, who is the Holy Spirit? The study of the Holy Spirit is known as pneumatology. It is spelled with a silent P, pneumatology. The reason for that is the Greek word for spirit is the word pneuma, thus pneumatology. This particular Greek word pneuma can be translated as spirit, it can be translated as wind, it can be translated as breath, most of the time, it is translated as spirit. Now, it can be translated as spirit with a capital S referring to the Holy Spirit, or it can be translated as spirit with a lowercase s referring to the spirit of man. And the only way to tell the difference is the context. And so because of that, there are some verses that are disputed because some people say, I think that refers to the spirit of man, and others say, no, that's the Holy Spirit. And so they begin to argue about the context. We live in a day today in which many people believe that they have communication from the Holy Spirit. And they strongly desire feelings and nudgings and teachings and guidance from the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, you have the Calvinists. Calvinists believe in total hereditary depravity. That is, they believe that when Adam sinned in the garden, that Adam's sin was passed on to all of his descendants so that babies are born depraved. And they believe that the only way that you can come to know and believe the truth is that the Holy Spirit operates on your heart and removes that depravity. They, they would call it the, the natural man, the unregenerated man, and they would say he can't understand without direct help from the Holy Spirit. Now, we're going to answer the question this afternoon, who is the Holy Spirit? We're going to cover three points. Number one, we're going to talk about his person. Number two, his position. And then number three, we're going to talk about his role. First, let's talk about his person. I saw a brother in Christ post on Facebook one day, and he said this, I am thankful for the Holy Spirit and how it empowers me. Brethren, I want to make the point as we begin, the Holy Spirit is not an it. It is very important that we understand that the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit has personal characteristics. That's very important because some people think of the Holy Spirit as an elusive force, some sort of a mysterious influence or a substance that emanates from the Father. But listen how Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 16 and verse 13, Jesus said, However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, 
He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. Notice that Jesus spoke of the Holy Spirit as a person. He speaks of him using the personal pronoun he. In fact, when you read some of the characteristics of the Holy Spirit, it helps us to understand and appreciate the personage. He has personage just like the Father, just like the Son. He has a mind, Romans 8, 27. He speaks, John 16, 13. He teaches, John 14, 26. He bears witness, John 15, uh, or John 15, 26. With respect to his personal reactions, he can be grieved, he can be vexed, he can be tested. So the Holy Spirit is a person, all right? Here is the second point, his position. Friends, the position of the Holy Spirit is that of deity. He is God. In Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, Peter stated that by lying to the Holy Spirit, Ananias had lied to God. Thus, he equated the Holy Spirit to God. Hebrews 9 and verse 14 says the Spirit is eternal. Now, why is that significant? Only God is eternal. That means the Holy Spirit was not a created being. He has always existed, and only God has always existed. In 2 Corinthians 2, verses 10 and 11, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit knows all things. That means He is omniscient. Only God is omniscient. The Holy Spirit is God. Now, that confuses some people, because they will say, I thought the Bible says that there's only one God. Does the Bible actually say that? Does the Bible actually say that there's only one God? Well, yeah, it says it quite a lot, as a matter of fact. In fact, uh, Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. Isaiah 45 and verse 5, I I am the Lord and there is none beside me. There is no God beside me. 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 6, Paul told the Corinthians, but to us there is but one God. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5, for there is one one God and one mediator between God and man. That is the man, Jesus Christ. James 2.19, you believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. The Bible has hundreds of passages emphasizing there's one God. But what about the term Trinity? Have you ever heard that word before? The word Trinity, what does that mean? You see the prefix there, the the tri, that refers to three, unity, tri-unity. The term actually means three-in-oneness. The Trinity may be defined this way. God eternally exists as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each is fully God, but there is one God. Now, that might be confusing to people because of the previous point, and that is the fact that there is one God. If there is one God, how can the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all be God? But you know, the fact of the matter is, you learn about the concept of the Trinity from the very first verse of the Bible, don't you? Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word for God there is the Hebrew word Elohim, which there is plural in number. This particular word is found 2,000 times in the Old Testament. 
It is very interesting that a book that repeatedly stresses the concept of one God uses a plural word to describe the one God. So you keep reading in Genesis 1. You get to verse 26, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Who is the us in this passage? Well, Genesis 1.1, God the Father was involved in the creation. Genesis 1 and verse 2 says the Spirit was present at the creation. Colossians 1 and verse 16 says everything that was made was made by Jesus Christ. And so all three members of the Godhead were involved in the creation. Now, while the word Trinity is not found in the Bible, what you do find is the word Godhead. There are three members of the Godhead. God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit, sometimes referred to as the Comforter. There are at least four passages in the New Testament that very clearly lay out this idea of the Godhead. Acts 17 and verse 29, Paul, when he's on Mars Hill, said this, being the offspring of God, we ought not to think of the Godhead like unto gold or silver or stone or graven art and the device of man. Now, the New King James, instead of saying Godhead there, says the divine nature. I, I kind of like that translation, the Godhead, the divine nature. Colossians 2 and verse 9, speaking about Christ, says, For in him dwells all of the fullness of the Godhead. Bodily. That means everything that it means to be God dwelt in him. Matthew 28 and verse 19, Jesus speaking to the apostles, of course giving them the great commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He names all three persons of the Godhead. 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 14, Paul closes the book of 2 Corinthians with these words, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. So here's the question. Is there one, or is there three? Which one is it? This concept troubles some people. This concept confuses some people. How can the Bible so emphatically say that there's one God if it turns around and says the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are all God? And the answer is this. There is only one deity. There is only one divine nature, if you will. There's one divine nature, but there's three persons who possess this divine nature. So how can God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit be one and still be God? The word that is translated as one is from a Hebrew word that has the power of an adjective. It carries with it the idea of being united or joined together. This is what's very interesting. That same Hebrew word appears in Genesis 2 and verse 24 when it says about the man and the woman that they are one flesh. Same word. Obviously, the man and the woman were not one person, but the Bible says that they are one in the sense of union or unity. And likewise, God is a compound unity, not an absolute one. And so the word God is the, the uh, name of the divine nature, but there's three persons who comprise God. All right, here is point number three. Oh, I skipped that point. The Trinity. 
What about that? Skip that point. I'm just behind here. I need someone else controlling my PowerPoint for me. All right. Um, let's talk about the role of the Holy Spirit. There are three distinct persons that make up the Godhead, and each member of the Godhead has a different role. Now, I want to talk about this first and think about the role of each member of the Godhead when it came to the creation. During the creation, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word for God is Elohim. If you want to be technical, the word Elohim can be singular or plural, depending on the context. In this context, it is plural. We learned that in the beginning, God the Father created the earth. And then the text says, the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so the words us and are tell us that God the Father is not alone when he created this earth. Now, you add to this when you get to John chapter 1 and verse 1. When John began his book, he said, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning God. Now listen to verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And so what we learn in the very beginning is something about the role of the Father in the creation. God the Father was the designer of the creation. That is his role. He determined the extent and the order of the creation. But we see that Christ the Word is the one who actually carried it out. I think that is further borne out when we continue looking at the the roles of the other two members of the Godhead. God the Father is the designer. It is his plan. So what was the role of Christ? Well, he is the executor, the executor. We just noticed that all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. Listen to this. Same thing in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. Verse 15 says about Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Verse 16 says, All things were created through Him and for Him. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, now listen, through whom he made the world. So what do we get? It's the Father's plan. He's the designer of the plan. Jesus Christ is the executor. He is the one that carried out the plan. So what was the role of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the finisher. He is the completer, the beautifier of the plan. The Bible says that the earth had been created... And yet, it's described as being waste and void, and darkness is upon the face of the earth. And then the Bible says, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. God said, let there be light, and there was light, and here the work of the Holy Spirit began. The Holy Spirit brings forth light, and he separated the darkness, the day and the night. Then the Holy Spirit made the firmament, and he divides the waters above the firmament from the waters under the firmament. He calls dry land to appear, and he put forth grass and herbs and trees. We might say that the Holy Spirit made order out of chaos. 
He's the finisher. He is the completer. How do I know that? Listen to what Job says. Job 26 and verse 13 says, By his spirit he adorned the heavens. Psalm 104 and verse 30 says, You send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. And so during the creation, you have God the Father is the designer of the creation. Christ the Word is the uh, executor of God's design. And the Holy Spirit is the finisher, the beautifier of the things that had been created. Now, before we move to the next point, I want to emphasize that one of the characteristics of the Godhead is that God is a God of order. He is a God of system. God has always operated in a systematic procedure in in something that scholars refer to as divine economy. Each member of the Godhead has his own particular function in the role of creation. Now, here's our next point. What about in the scheme of redemption? Just like the creation, each member of the Godhead had his own role, it is also going to be that way when it comes to the scheme of redemption. Somebody put it this way, and I stole it because I liked it. They said, the Father wrought it, the Son bought it, and the Holy Spirit taught it. It's pretty good, isn't it? He wrought it, bought it, and taught it. Now, let's be specific with regard to the scheme of redemption. God the Father wrought it. What does that mean? It means it was his plan. He's the originator of the plan. Just like with the creation, it was his creation. It is his plan. Now, I could give you several passages. I think one is sufficive to make the point. It's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. This verse implies that the scheme of redemption was conceived in the mind of God the Father. It was his plan and purpose. It's also interesting when you read Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 11. It says about God as he sees Christ on the cross, he, the Father, shall see the travail of his soul and he shall be satisfied. The implication is it was the Father's plan. God's plan and design was to produce a system whereby mankind could be justified and forgiven. And that was going to require a sacrifice. So what was the role of the Son? The Son, once again, is the executor. He's the executor. He is the one that carried out the plan of the Father. God the Father wrought it. Jesus, the Son, bought it. He is the one who executed the plan. He became the sacrifice that was envisioned in the mind of the Father. He bought it. He paid the price for our sins. Hebrews 2 and verse 9 says, He tasted death for every man. Revelation 5 and verse 9 says that He redeemed us by His blood. You know what that means? He bought us. He paid the price. Ephesians 3 and verse 9, speaking about the gospel, says this, which from the beginning of the ages has been hid in God who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he, the Father, purposed in Christ Jesus. This verse implies that it was God the Father's plan. We see His wisdom 
and he accomplished that plan through Christ Jesus. Christ is the executor of the plan. So what is the role of the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit taught it. The Father wrought it. It's his plan. The Holy Spirit, or uh, God the Son, Jesus Christ, bought it. He carried it out, and the Holy Spirit taught it. He is the finisher. He is the completer. Now, what do we mean by that? Even though Christ had come and he died to redeem man, there was still a lot of work to be done. And so before Jesus died, he told his disciples in John 14, 16, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, and he will abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth. Verse 26 of John 14 says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send, see it's the Father's plan, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said unto you. The Father wrought it, the Holy Spirit, or the Son bought it, and the Holy Spirit taught it. Ladies and gentlemen, the primary work of the Holy Spirit was to give us the Bible. He taught us the pattern that we follow in religion today. Again, Jesus told his disciples, He will teach you all things. John 14, 16. 2 Peter 1 and verse 21 says, For prophecy never came by the will of man. It wasn't man's doing. But holy men of God spake, how? As they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the revealer. He is the giver of the divine pattern. He miraculously guided men into all truth. He guided men to write the New Testament. He's the giver of the book. But until the book was completed, the Holy Spirit provided miraculous revelation so that they would have the Word, they would learn, and they would be prepared to be the New Testament church until the complete Word was finished. In fact, when you get to 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 and 14, you read about that. They had miraculous gifts and miraculous abilities. In fact, 1 Corinthians 14 is an amazing chapter because you read about a miraculous worship service. How did they preach in the first century? They couldn't say, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8 like we did this morning. They didn't have Romans chapter 8. So what did they do? The Holy Spirit spoke the Word in a miraculous way And he continued doing that until it was written down and he didn't have to do it anymore. But the work of the Holy Spirit was the same. He was providing the word miraculously. He provides the word today in written form. And when he initially gave it, he did miracles to prove that it really was from God. Anyone could speak a word and say, this is the word of God, but the miracles confirm that it was from God. The work of the Father was the originator the creator, the designer of the plan. The work of the Son was the executor. He carried out the plan. He paid the price. The work of the Holy Spirit was the finisher. His job was not to originate truth, but to communicate truth. Jesus said, The Spirit will not speak from Himself, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will tell you all things to come. John sixteen thirteen. And so, if we're going to summarize the work of the Holy Spirit in the Bible, I would put it this way. During the New Testament, the Holy Spirit spoke through men to reveal the New Testament system. Along with that, the Holy Spirit performed miracles to show that this message really was from God. 
after the New Testament was completed, the Holy Spirit continued to work, but he only did it through means of his word. And so today, the tool through which the Holy Spirit works is the word. That's why Ephesians 6 and verse 17 says, Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. What is the tool through which the Holy Spirit works today? Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. All right, here's the question I want to ask. How does the Holy Spirit work today? How does the Holy Spirit dwell in us today? I know of three different views with regard to how the Holy Spirit dwells in us today. Number one, some people believe that the Holy Spirit literally, physically dwells in us but he doesn't do anything. The people who hold this view believe that when a person becomes a Christian, the Holy Spirit physically indwells in their body, but he doesn't lead you. He he just dwells in you, but he only works through the Bible. The second view is the literal indwelling, but he does do something. Those who hold this view believe that the Holy Spirit physically comes into the body of a Christian and he provides you extra power, extra knowledge. He strengthens you to resist sin. He gives you inner conscious communications from God, holy nudges, if you will. The third view is that the Holy Spirit today only works through the Word. Those who hold this view believe that since the Holy Spirit was the revealer of the Word, that the way he indwells us today is through that message. And that if you fill your mind with the message of the Holy Spirit, you are therefore filling yourself with the Spirit. So which one is it? What is the answer? I mentioned that there are three different views. There first is the literal indwelling, but he doesn't do anything. I don't agree with that. I know some brethren who hold this view. I don't think it's dangerous. I think we can fellowship. In fact, this is the old uh, Guy in Woods, Gus Nichols, that they argued about this in the Freed Hardeman lectures, and some of those old debates where they're going back and forth are actually on YouTube if you want to listen to them. They're very, very interesting. The second view is that the Holy Spirit literally indwells in you, and he leads you. He guides you. Brethren, this is very dangerous. This is false. That view plays right into the hands of Pentecostalism. It implies that the Bible is not all-sufficient, and it, it becomes very subjective because a person has to try to interpret what these supposed leadings mean. I think, uh, I think this is dangerous, and I would say is even unscriptural. I believe that the third view is the correct one. It's the view that I hold, and it is the only way the Holy Spirit dwells in us today is through the Word. I believe that every single passage in the New Testament that mentions the Holy Spirit falls into one of two categories. Either it refers to the miraculous indwelling that occurred in the first century, or it refers to the Spirit indwelling us through the Word. And since we don't have miraculous indwelling today, every passage that is relevant to us today refers to the indwelling through the Word. I put this chart together some years ago. Um, In fact, if anybody wants it, I'll email you the chart. But I want you to notice this. I believe the Holy Spirit today works only through the Word. It's interesting that the Bible says the Holy Spirit instructs, Nehemiah 9.30, the Word instructs, 2 Timothy 3, 12-17. 
The Holy Spirit quickens. The Word quickens. The Holy Spirit teaches. The Word teaches. The Holy Spirit convicts. The Word convicts, comforts, gives love, saves, washes, sanctifies, makes us free, dwells in us, strengthens us, leads us, is a witness. We are born of the Spirit. We are born of the Word. In every one of these categories, what we have is we are being told the Spirit does this, the Word does this. How is that? Because the Holy Spirit today works through the Word. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Who is the Holy Spirit? His person is not an it. He is a person. He is a he. What is his position? He is God. What is his role? To reveal the word, and he continues to work through that word even today. I'm not sure what time I'm supposed to stop. Is it time to to stop or just keep preaching as long as I want to preach? What's that? Okay. Okay, Paul said 35 more minutes, I think. So, just kidding. Let me, um, let me just mention a, a passage or two that are brought up to me very fre- frequently, and I'll wrap this up. Sometimes people will say, well, Don, what about passages like 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19, where it says, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? And they'll say, see, the Bible says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, you said you believe every passage today is one of, uh, one of two. It either refers to the miraculous indwelling from the first century, or it refers to the word today. So what would you say about that? Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? I believe this is a miraculous passage. Why do I think that? When Paul says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, to whom is he talking to? I want you to keep in mind to whom this passage is written. One of the main purposes of the book of 1 Corinthians was to correct the abuse of spiritual gifts. When you open this book, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2, he immediately starts talking about spiritual gifts. You get to chapter 1 and verse 5, he uses the phrase, in all utterance, talking about the ability to speak in different languages, miraculous tongues. Chapters 12, 13, 14. In chapter 12, he lists nine different spiritual gifts. Chapter 13, we call that the love chapter, right? That was given to us for weddings, right? I'm just kidding. That was dealing with the problem that they had an issue in the church that some people thought one spiritual gift was better than another, and he begins, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and I have all prophecy and all wisdom. And he's speaking about the spiritual gifts. Chapter 14, he's describing a miraculous worship service and how they were to sing and pray with the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit would give them messages. In light of what's going on in that book, I want you to think about chapter 6 and verse 19. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? I want you to think, if you were one of these people who had the miraculous indwelling, and he's written this whole book to you about how to deal with these miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit and the proper way and the improper way, and then he says to you, do you not know that the Holy Spirit dwells in you? The word gnosko, do you not know by personal knowledge the Holy Spirit dwells in you? But I'm not talking about the miraculous. I'm talking about a non-miraculous way in which the Holy Spirit dwells. That wouldn't even make sense to those people. 
the context for these people would have been miraculous. So that's what I believe about that. I could go on and go, go through some of the other passages that are common uh, about being sealed with the Spirit, but the main thing that we need to understand today is this. The Holy Spirit is deity. The Holy Spirit is a member of the Godhead. He is a person. He is a he. And he works and leads us today through the Word of God because it is all sufficient. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.